Hello and welcome to the Chair's Corner from the Department of Medicine at the University of North Carolina. This is our series for patients focused on organ transplant and today we're going to be talking about heart transplant itself. We welcome Dr. Patty Chang, who's an Associate Professor of Medicine in our Division of Cardiology, where she directs not only the heart failure, but also the transplant program at UNC. So welcome, Dr. Chang. Thank you. Not too long ago, we recorded an episode focused on heart failure with you, Dr. Chang, and we just barely touched on heart transplant. So today, what I want to do is provide a more in-depth conversation about what patients go through in the heart transplant process. So the first question really is, how does a patient actually get on the heart transplant list? What do they have to do to get on the list? Yeah, great question, because this process of evaluation can be quite confusing both to the patient and local or referring providers. And I think our first effort is really to make sure we encourage referring providers and patients to think, huh, how soon do I need to think about other alternative therapies like heart transplantation? And one of the things we really encourage is that we see these patients earlier rather than later. And so when we have a patient think about heart transplant and the referring uh, initiates that type of referral, we say, this is a process. It doesn't mean just because we meet you that you're on the waiting list immediately, but it's really a true multidisciplinary evaluation of your candidacy for something as serious and as resource intensive as heart transplantation. I think we pride ourselves on the team approach, and the team is not only the heart failure or transplant cardiologist seeing the patient, but all the people involved to make sure that they can have a successful outcome. So that would be our nurse coordinators, often referred to as our heart transplant coordinators. We, of course, have our heart surgeons who ultimately do the surgery itself. But as part of the evaluation, we not only want to make sure we vet out all the important medical issues and potential medical comorbidities or complications that could occur after transplant, but we also want to make sure that their social and psychological state or mental well-being can withstand all the things that are needed to undergo this process. While we often think that this is a surgery, it's more of a process than just the surgery. So I think the evaluation process, as we often describe as multidisciplinary, involves meeting the cardiologist, meeting the nurse coordinators, meeting our social worker, our psychologist, perhaps our psychiatrist as needed, our financial counselor, our dietitian, and ultimately the surgeon as well. Walk me through the process of deciding how a patient would have an artificial uh, device, a ventricular assist device or a heart transplant. When do you decide that somebody should have a VAD, that's what ventricular assist device stands for? How is that device sometimes thought of as a temporary device or uh, as a bridge to transplant device? And then the actual uh, possibility of getting a living uh, organ from a deceased donor? How do you decide what a patient really needs? Great question, because very often we are evaluating a patient for both transplant and a ventricular assist device. 
The process is very, very similar. The major difference is that we don't worry about suppressing the immune system in someone who needs a ventricular assist device, but otherwise the evaluation process is the same. We often now think of the LVAD or the left ventricular assist device as a bridge to transplant. In some patients, it is the alternative or destination therapy, and that's all they'll be eligible for. But very common now, we don't have the luxury to wait for an organ transplant, which can happen in a short time or very often in a long while for waiting for a transplant. And so we have to think about a patient needing a ventricular assist device before they actually get their transplant. As a result, the process is very similar to go through uh, evaluating the patient's candidacy for both. How long can a patient live with an LVAD? Many years. We are very excited that as technology has improved, patients can do very, very well and live very much a normal life on an LVAD. The only issue that limits this technology is that it is connected to an external power source, so a patient cannot submerge themselves in water or go swimming or take a true bath, but they can certainly shower and go to the beach and put their legs in the water. Because the power device is a battery that is carried externally. Right, and we certainly don't want to short-circuit any power source and have them lose power, which is then obviously potentially life-threatening. What's the difference between a destination LVAD, a destination left ventricular assist device and a temporary one. Do they look different? Do they feel differently? Most of the time, if we're talking about what we think of durable LVADs, they look the same, whether it's as a bridge to transplant or if it's destination as the final therapy for that patient. There are more temporary support devices that we think about as temporizing the patient to a more permanent type of LVAD that they can leave the hospital with. But when we think about a temporary support device as bridge to transplant or as destination, it's really the same device that can let the patient leave the hospital and live a normal life at home. So if the LVAD, the destination LVAD, works as well as you're describing it, other than the concern of the external battery pack, why would somebody then want a heart transplant uh, if they're not planning to do a lot of swimming, for example? Why would they want a, a heart transplant instead of this destination VAD? What's the population that does better with a living organ versus this mechanical device? I think we all have our various biases, and we certainly have many LVAD patients who don't want or do not want a heart transplantation for a variety of reasons. Is that age? Would age Oftentimes factor? Oftentimes it's age. Uh, we certainly think about an age cutoff for patients who are no longer eligible for heart transplantation, and that's variable and very much individualized. But some patients who get an LVAD who could be eligible for transplant are just not interested. And the reasons they often describe as why they're not interested could be financial or further risk. Again, they're not having issues with having their immune system suppressed. Therefore, they don't need all sorts of medications that might be very, very expensive that would be potentially life-sustaining for them and 
certainly more expensive than what is needed to take care of someone who just has an LVAD alone. And I think the heart failure provider has their own biases. My personal bias is that machines are really great, but machines are machines, and eventually they break until we have a machine that doesn't break. And so while tissue probably lasts longer than machine, current data still suggests that heart transplant survival is better than mechanical support or mechanical circulatory support or LVAD survival in the long term. So a young patient, for example, a young individual who needed a heart transplant for the long term probably would be better off getting a heart transplant than uh, a left ventricular assist device. Absolutely. How do you decide whether a heart's a match? How do you decide that a deceased donor's heart is a match for one of your patients? There are many factors that we consider as we look at donor hearts. Donor hearts do get classified by blood type, and so it really needs to be first a uh, match by blood type. An A, a B, an O, or an AB, in other words. That's right. And then the size is important. So for someone like me who's not very tall, I could take a not very tall person, but someone who's very tall, over six feet, cannot take a five-foot donor heart, as an example. So size is important, blood type is important, and then ultimately we want our donor hearts to be as healthy as they can as they go into the recipient, although there are sometimes cases where we might need to consider cases where the donor heart's not perfect but good enough. So once the person has had a heart transplant, what's the recovery like? How quickly do they leave the hospital? We like to see patients leave within roughly one or two weeks. That would be very average. It is obviously cardiac surgery, and so what a patient goes through is not only the surgery of opening their chest, then closing their chest, but having chest tubes drain the chest. And oftentimes, ironically, it's the chest tubes that take the longest to come out that limit the patient's discharge time. But, you know, we certainly do a lot of medical management after the transplant. So it's a combination of making sure all the medical issues and the surgical issues are resolved before they leave. How much of the recovery time is dependent upon the debility of the patient going in? In other words, if the person is in reasonable shape, physical shape, they probably have a shorter recovery time than somebody who, because of their heart failure, has become substantially deconditioned. That's absolutely right. And that is why we really encourage patients who are waiting for a heart transplant to be as functional as possible, even if they're stuck in the ICU in our intensive care unit waiting for a transplant. If they are able to ambulate, we encourage them to ambulate. They do better than patients who are really bedridden until their transplant. And that's why we also encourage that we have patients consider an LVAD before transplant if they need it or if they are eligible because that allows them to be more functionally ready and have better outcomes if they are doing better before transplant. When does somebody say to you, hey, I feel pretty normal? After a heart transplant? Yes. It probably takes about a month or maybe even less for some patients. It depends how their activity is after transplant. They're walking around 
after a day or two of being transplanted if everything goes as wished. And then they're walking out of the hospital, and then it's just a matter of them continuing to walk. And as they come to their follow-up appointments, a lot of them really feel great within a month or two. How long do they end up following up with you? Essentially forever. We love to have our patients do well, and they really should be hooked in with a transplant center for the rest of their lives, simply because their medication regimen is so specialized. And we would want to make sure that any medication changes are double-checked by transplant professionals. And so in the early year, we tell them they're going to see us at least 20 times. They see us as frequently as every week for a little while, and then certainly every month. And then after their first year, it's every few months. And then after the first couple years, it's just every six months. And then at some point, if they're doing so great, maybe we just see them once a year. But more frequently, it's every six-month follow-up indefinitely. The worry, of course, as in all transplants, is of rejection. How does a patient know that they're having a rejection, or is that something that you determine by a variety of tests? We often think that when a patient feels rejection, it may be too late. And so we encourage very frequent follow-up and surveillance or monitoring of the patient before they develop symptoms. The symptoms we worry about the most are symptoms of heart failure, just like they had before their transplant. At that point, if they have those symptoms, we worry that rejection has been unchecked for way too long. So as a result, what we do to monitor them is do frequent testing, like heart biopsies and other blood tests to monitor for rejection before it becomes clinically symptomatic. How do you do a heart biopsy? We do need to get inside the heart. So what we do is we... Uh, do a procedure, typically in the cardiac catheterization lab, where we access one of their veins to get catheters into their heart, into the right side of the heart, and take little tiny pieces from their heart and look at them under the microscope. And when we look at the microscope, we hope we don't see inflammatory cells attacking the heart. But if we do, then we do worry, could there be some rejection? And we certainly have all sorts of classification schemes to tell us how significant the results are. So it's really careful monitoring. So does the chance of rejection decrease over the course of time? So is rejection more likely in the first year than, for example, at year five? It's been quoted that 99% of all rejection occurs in the first year and perhaps heaviest in the first month. And thereafter, we monitor with biopsies because we do want to decrease the immunosuppression over time. That way the body is not so immunocompromised or their immune system's not so compromised as time goes forward. Heart transplant rejection rates have really plummeted over the course of time. So the hope is that once you get a heart transplant, it will last for for a really long time. That's right. And we really quote to our patients that the average survival after transplant is well over a decade. Yeah, that's just, that's fantastic. What's the longest heart transplant you've taken care of? The record holder right now is about 30 years, and that patient is doing great. That's a remarkably long period of time, and that speaks to the uh, difference between heart transplantation and mechanical assist devices, because there's no mechanical assist device that would last anywhere near 
uh, that long. That's right. And I think we have heard of survivors with a mechanical assist device of over 10 years. Our personal record is over eight and going. And so it can be very durable for a long time, but still not as good as transplant. Dr. Chang, what brings you joy when you come to work? The thing that gives me the most professional gratification is seeing my patients live their life to the fullest. I really enjoy having my patients send me photos or videos of what they're doing in life, which includes hiking in the Banff National Park or going across the world giving lectures in Vienna uh, or climbing mountains or running marathons or raising awareness just by doing local Raleigh-based heart transplant or heart disease awareness campaigns. And then when we see them in clinic, they tell us all these great stories of what they've done, and obviously they're very thankful. And every year we celebrate these patients with a heart reunion. And these reunions are both for our heart transplant recipients and our LVAD recipients, where they have the joy to come and share their experiences with others and encourage others, and we all show our thanks to each other. Uh, Dr. Chang, thank you so much for spending time today, and thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in. This episode completes our series on organ transplants, and we hope you've enjoyed it. Stay tuned for the next episodes in the near future where we're going to talk about HIV-AIDS. You can subscribe to the Cherish Corner on iTunes or like us on Facebook. Thanks so much.